Hello and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, and today we're going to be going over one of the most exciting fields in biology that's emerging right now, and that is the microbiome. These are essentially the bacteria that live on and inside of our bodies as humans. And this field is so exciting because it's so much more than just microbiology and miniature little bacteria. It really has brought so much more to light of, you know, who and what we are as human beings and kind of this evolutionary partnership that we've actually shared with bacteria for so many years that we're only being, you know, that we're only able to study now. So this one might be a little bit of a longer episode. I may just break it into two bits, but essentially I think it's definitely worth it. Um, a lot of what I learned about the microbiome or was inspired to learn was from a book by a biologist named Alana Cole called 10% Human. I'd really recommend reading that if you want to go deeper in everything. And, you know, when I taught this microbiology in microbiology, this was super exciting because this got us away from all the normal, regular, boring microbiology stuff and got us into this really amazing new science. So the title of this episode kind of says it all. How human are you? You know, how many human cells, for example, do you think are in your body? And how many of these bacterial cells do you think are in your body? The answer is pretty stunning because it's actually, there are roughly nine bacteria cells for every human cell that exist in your body. Now, the reason this is possible, remember, is that bacteria are tiny little creatures, single cells. Their cells are about a hundred or even a thousand times smaller than our human cells, which are big and complex. So bacteria are essentially just these little tiny units of life. And we kind of went over how they represent the the minute, the basic needs of life that they can evolve, they have DNA, they can change, they can metabolize different things. But what the microbiome is, is something very different. And you have to view it from the perspective that we're kind of in this together. The term for this is a halobiont or a superorganism. We are a superorganism comprised of thousands of different species of bacteria that number in the trillions. You know, and it's amazing how much we're able to learn about this. And we weren't able to do much, you know, we weren't able to do a lot of this research because most of the bacteria that we encounter in the microbiome, they're all in our stomach. And that's characteristically where you read articles about things like that, and that they're always like helping with nutrition, all that. And the problem is, is that lab science actually wasn't caught up to make or simulate a proper environment outside a human stomach for these species. And the thing is, we have to study these species because the species inside us are specific to us. Very specific. You won't find the same inside a cow, chimpanzee, anything else. They essentially co-evolved with us over the last, you know, four or five million years since human evolution really kicked into gear. And, well, they have, I mean, they have been even before that. So, one of the coolest things that this has brought into the evolutionary fold is that Humans have in all their cells roughly 22,000 genes that can be used to, you know, repurpose all kinds of different cells. It can make your intestine cells do stuff, your nervous system, all that. The thing is, though, is there are roughly 4.4 million bacterial genes in your microbiome. So 22,000 versus 4 million, it's a huge difference. And like we know, you're born into your genome. You can't change that. But you can change a microbiome, as we'll find out during this, uh, during this cast. So... Again, one of the biggest themes that always crosses my path as a cancer biologist, as a microbiologist, just as a scientist, is ecology. 
there are always partnerships and the story is always interweaving with ecology. What humans are is essentially an environment. We, there are roughly 18 areas on us that serve as ecosystems for these bacteria. And for the most part, it's a very mutualistic relationship. The bacteria do good things for us, we do good things for them. So each of these ecosystems has different species of bacteria. The bacteria on your skin are far different from those in your stomach or you know, in other parts of your body. And each ecosystem is very, you know, it's unique. On the outside, you know, we're very dry. It's, uh, it's probably a little cooler. On the inside, things are very acidic inside the stomach. They're very hot, they're very violent. You know, so those bacteria are the hardest to study even. And they're definitely some of the most like evolutionary, you know, strongest that we've seen. So some of the, um, you know, one of the biggest benefits of bacteria that people actually have the microbiome bacteria so our beneficial our little allies that they don't realize is they actually keep us healthy and when you think about it remember they want us to be healthy we're their living environment they want us to live so the good ones always want us to live one of the best ways that they do this is literally take up space inside our stomach so our stomach has you know a certain amount of surface area right like all that lining all that like mucus skin all that blah 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 really gross. Whenever we're eating stuff or breathing stuff in, you know, we're breathing or eating in tons of bacteria that's just in the environment, right? Like that's terrible. Like, you know, you can eat some food, say at a meeting or a seminar, and who knows if some person has already touched that with the palm of their hand. Real nasty, right? The thing that our microbiome does against that is called a competitive exclusion. If you have a good microbiome, your good species are already taking up all the available room on your stomach. Every square little centimeter, little millimeter, everything is just covered in good bacteria. And thus, when you ingest something bad, there's literally just nowhere for the bad bacteria to sit down and settle and, you know, start attacking. Moreover, even on this, not only just taking up room, our good bacteria actually secrete antibacteria proteins that kill and like fend off other species that they aren't used to being neighbors with. So the harmful ones that can kill us. So it's this amazing partnership that we've really found out we owe so much more to. So speaking on evolution and this co-evolution, one of the coolest things is, like I said, you know, we have 22,000 genes. The, the total amount of trillions of bacteria have like 4.4 million. So when humans were developing a larger brain, maybe a couple million years ago, there was an enzyme. So what, what our brains needed was vitamin B12, and we didn't get enough of that from our diets. And we know now that brains need vitamin B12 to develop at the rate that human brains do. The thing is, is that we didn't even have an enzyme or a gene that in our genome that could even start metabolizing and making vitamin B12. But at the perfect time when humans needed that, an advantage was gained in humans that gained a new species of bacteria in their microbiome called uh, Klebsilia. That's the family name. And Klebsilia has a gene that can digest vitamin B12 for us and like metabolize it and get it ready for us. And that's how we actually get a lot of vitamin B12 still. So instead of evolving over millions, what would have taken millions of years and slowed our evolution to a standstill, we essentially 
what's the, the best word for this is outsourced our evolution. We brought something in that was already ready, well-made, and it made exactly what we needed. A similar thing happened with cattle when we started to domesticate them. When we started eating cows, we actually started ingesting you know, some of their gut microbes. Some of those gut microbes are specifically built to digest certain parts of plants that previously we couldn't digest. But once we had this kind of partnership with cows, you know, it didn't work out with the cows, obviously. When we ate them, we also gained certain species from their microbiome that were beneficial to us because then we started planting, you know, new crops, things like this that we could never eat before. And so all these millions of years ago, we suddenly had all these advantages and these jumps in evolution can be assisted not by our genes, but by the genes of the species that co-inhabit us. So it was really cool. Um, you know, probably one of the most amazing set of circumstances. You know, when I learned about this, I thought this was amazing. And all this stuff is out there in real papers. So I'd encourage you to go look in the real science if you ever want to um, and, and just check it out. It's super exciting. So the next thing we, we're going to get into, and it is still along the lines of the coevolution, is microbial mind control. Kind of a crazy idea, right? The idea that small things could influence your thoughts or behavior, right? It's not totally out of the question, though. We already know that, you know, things like fungi produce certain acids that, when they infect insects, can make them go up trees to get eaten by birds, which then drop the fungal spores in their droppings again, the insects get infected, the cycle continues. That's the cordyceps virus. I think that was actually featured in The Last of Us, the video game. Um, cool game. I never played it. I was too scared. In any case, um, we know that microbes can control small brains. Can they control bigger ones, though? We also know that, you know, from psychedelic drugs, things that are, you know, derived from plants and fungi a lot of the time, we know that their byproducts can change quite a bit about our brains and what we see and observe and how we act. So, again, not out of the question that microorganisms can influence the brain. So what if I told you there was a type of microorganism that caused you to lose your sense of fear, to become more daring, and in effect, probably a little stupider. And that's toxoplasmosis. And you may have heard of this in the news. So toxoplasmosis is a fungus that can best breed in the gut of a cat. A house cat's fine. So if a human comes into contact with cat feces, just by chance, say you have a cat and scrape the litter box, and you actually get infected with toxoplasmosis, it's not gonna kill you or anything, and this is a fungus, not a bacteria, what it can do is actually send up certain signals that block a lot of your fear responses. So the mechanism is not wholly known yet, but essentially you become more daring. You become more impulsive, possibly a bit angrier. There's very little true science on this yet, but the results have always been there. It's just a matter of refining what exactly is happening. The reason toxoplasmosis does this is that it also infects rats, and this is where the life cycle comes in. Toxoplasmosis from cats is transmitted to rats. The rats, who have you know a similar nervous system, etc., you know just the basic genes that humans do, basically, toxoplasmosis-infected rats lose all fear of felines, and that's an inherent biological fear, and they lose it. The rats that lose that fear get eaten by a cat. The toxoplasmosis gets into the cat. The cycle goes all over again. So 
it's really crazy. And we figured out that humans are very susceptible to this same exact thing. And it brought the better question of the microbiome species. So toxoplasmosis is a fungal infection. But what about the species that we've been talking about, the microbiome, the little bacteria that are all in our gut? It turns out that your gut is very, very well connected to your nervous system. It tells you, you know, exactly how to feel more quickly than any other organ in your body. Because the vagus nerve actually goes right from your gut all the way to your, to your brain, essentially. So what we found out is that in this coevolution, good bacteria of ours will feed neurotransmitters or neurotransmitter-like molecules when you feed them, when you eat something that they like and they can metabolize. Because remember, bacteria can't eat everything. They can only digest certain things. So for example, if you have a lot of sugar bacteria in your gut and you down you know, a big like Diet Coke or some ice cream, the first feeling you're gonna get is those bacteria cells will metabolize that and they will feed you happy serotonin, tons of happy neurotransmitting signals that will make you feel happy. They are essentially training you to say, when you eat something that feeds me, I will make you happy and this partnership will continue. Thus, the more sugar you eat, the more bacteria of that kind you're gonna grow and so on and so forth. We call this a feed forward cycle. And this is why a lot of the time, if you are in kind of a healthy diet or a poor diet, you tend to have sort of an inertia, like you can't stop one way or the other, you know? So it's very, you know, it's a very cool thing that you can't change your trajectory on that sometimes because these bacteria are literally sending signals that say, yes, keep eating that. I like that. And now you like that. So it's really cool. All kinds of, you know, crazy stuff that we're learning about this. So next thing is that, well, let's see. Sorry, I just want to make sure the dog's good. Yep, she's just sleeping. So next thing is that there are good bacteria out there, like fibrous bacteria, bacteria that like to eat fiber. And that's, that's probably the biggest one that we found out is in people that are quote-unquote healthy. The thing is, is that a lot of the fibrous species, what they do is produce not only the neurotransmitters that say, happy, happy, you know, eat more fiber, they produce a mucus along your intestinal lines. When you don't eat enough fiber, these species can't eat and they get outcompeted by sugar, fat, other bacteria species that prefer those things, you know, basically whatever they prefer you're eating. Without the fiber bacteria, you start to lose that mucosal layer. And what happens is that stuff that you're digesting gets into your bloodstream because that mucus isn't there to block it. That's a bad deal because your bloodstream is full of our next topic, immune cells. And when immune cells see stuff that's not supposed to be in the blood, they lose their mind. Everything goes crazy when they see something like that. So we'll get into this a bit later too, but essentially if you don't eat enough fiber and feed those good fiber bacteria, what you'll do is allow foreign objects from your gut that you're digesting into your bloodstream and your immune cells will attack it like nothing they've ever seen. This is how gluten intolerance can develop. If you don't eat enough fiber, for example, and there's other ways that this happens. There's obviously genetic inflammation reasons, um, you know, a number of things. But if you leak a bit of gluten outside of your intestine and you're the right set of cells encounter it, they will think that that is a pathogen. And what the immune cell is very good at doing is not only attacking that pathogen, 
but creating a response in the memory of the immune system that will attack that pathogen every time it encounters that. So if you have one bad gluten that it finds, every time you eat gluten from that on, your immune system will fire up. And the biggest problem is that the gluten at the molecular level looks a whole lot like your intestinal cells, sadly. So what this means is that anytime you eat gluten, you'll trigger the immune response and the immune cells will go after your intestine and burn it up because they're literally just attacking your own cells because they think it's a foreign invader. So all in all, add some fiber to your diet, eat some chia seeds maybe. We'll find that that is a very good move no matter what. Because essentially, so we've talked about all these, you know, these ways that the microbiome can help you. One of the biggest ways, and again, it's been this co-evolution, kind of this, this partnership, is that your microbiome species and all those species, diversity, everything, they, when you grow up, they're training your immune system basically to settle down. And this is an important point. The immune system is so powerful, it's hard to put into terms what it can do. You know, this is something that's been building and building for years, you know, because when we were evolving and even as long as 150 years ago, maybe our body was infested with parasites, bacteria, viruses. We didn't have the four big hygienic things. We didn't have antibiotics. We didn't have vaccination. We didn't have hygiene and we didn't have H2O cleaning. So our immune systems have been fighting and fighting and fighting all these years and especially big multicellular worms, parasites, things like that. And they have the power to get rid of those. Now that we don't have those things, that power is still there and it's always waiting for something to come across and just, you know, just obliterate it. Problem is that without these targets anymore, sometimes the target becomes us. And that's autoimmunity. That's diabetes. That's allergies. That's, in a lot of cases, we're finding out mental, um, mental health disorders, autism. And we'll get into those stories. So the, the basic thing is that we've been talking about bacteria, and now we're talking about the immune system. Why would the immune system ever allow certain sensitive, especially bacteria species, to live inside you? That seems insane, right? The thing is, is that these bacteria have, a, have evolved a very good signal chemical relationship with some of your immune cells that essentially protect them and keep your immune system just settled down. Because if it's not settled down and your immune system is hot, it could rip through a person in a few days. You know, that's how powerful it is. It could completely, you know, erase a human, which is really terrifying when you think of the power that's, you know, right inside your own cells. So essentially, these microbiome species, they attract a certain type of cell called a T regulatory cell. And they attract it and they give it good signals and they feed it. And essentially what the T regulatory cells or TREGs do the tregs essentially go around and calm the immune system down. They send signals that say, no more attacking here. Don't attack these area because this is microbiome. Don't attack this area because this is our own cells, you know? So when you disrupt the microbiome or you don't have enough species that are good uh, treg partners, that's when you start to have all of these autoimmune disorders. And this gets ahead of what we found, you know, maybe 50 years ago, why things were going so you know, why things were going so bad with what we call 21st century diseases. These include, you know, diabetes, obesity, allergies, autoimmune diseases, autism, asthma. And these diseases all appeared in the 1950s. They're, we call them 21st century diseases. 
This was also around the same time that antibiotics showed up. And consequently, it was also the same time we started, you know, we, we didn't die from cut, infected cuts, things like that. Soldiers in World War One, World War Two, if they got cut and they got gangrene, they would die. It was it was probably more deadly than, you know, in some cases, running across a trench battlefield. Maybe maybe not quite in the immediate sense. But essentially in the 1950s, with the advent of antibiotics, this overreactive immune system and gut dysfunction started to take over the population. And what we found out is that essentially the antibiotics are doing their job when we were putting them in people. They were killing the bacteria we wanted to kill. The big problem was, is that they were killing off big swaths, big groups of our own microbiome, our good species, the ones that are holding off, you know, all the other bad species, the ones that are training our immune system, the ones that are making us feel normal, you know, by sending those neurotransmitters. So antibiotics are really broad in what they kill. And when you killed off tons of your own bacteria, the first thing that shows up are opportunistic bad species. Species that are usually competitively excluded. Remember how you just take up too much room with your good bacteria? If you give them that room, they will absolutely seed in your gut, and they're there for a long time then. Especially, you know, if you've cleared out a big area. The bigger the area, the more seeding and resources these bad bacteria get. And you essentially hit a reset button on your microbiome, even though things were going really well at first. So that's why antibiotics are, you know, that's that's the gist on antibiotics being kind of a, something we've overused. This is completely ignoring the elephant in the room that the more antibiotics you use and, you know, don't finish courses or you prescribe them for viruses where antibiotics don't even work, you're breeding, sele- you're selectively breeding really resistant bad bacteria. Because every time you do a course of antibiotics, sometimes one or two, three, four resistant bacterial cells are left and now they bloom and they reproduce and now they're the big population. They're the infection. You know, they're staph, C. diff, things like that. So not only are you breeding resistance, you're killing your own microbiome and you're disrupting all kinds of ecosystems across your body. And what we're finding now is that's where a lot of these 21st century diseases are coming from. And one of the first ones that's You know, this is actually a story that was told in 10% Human. One of the ones is autism. And this is so strange because this disorder is diagnosed in some something like two to three percent of children now. It's rampant almost, you know. And the thing is, is that it was so rare before it didn't even have a name. It was maybe a few case studies. So essentially 10% Human sits you down and tells you a story of a mother who's a computer scientist in Wisconsin. Her child goes in for an ear infection, and this child's four years old, wonderful, everything's fine, great motor skills. The doctor prescribes one round of antibiotics. The ear infection persists, though. The doctor prescribes another round, a third round, a fourth. Now, by the time, this is by the time the mom is saying, this isn't working, we we can't keep doing this, right? And he says no. He prescribes a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, and finally an eighth round of antibiotics. Eight sets of antibiotics that are hitting different populations all the time. What happened to this poor kid is that his entire original microbiome was erased and space was left for really bad bacteria to come in. I want to look up the, uh, 
let me look up the name of them. The opportunistic species that took up residence in this child's gut was Clostridium. The issue with Clostridium is that it produces a byproduct called propionic or propionate acid. What the mother realized about her child about eight rounds in with these antibiotics was that he stopped expressing social skills. He stopped being able to focus. He stopped, um, you know, he stopped essentially being who he, who she thought he was. And she takes him into another doctor. He diagnoses him with a clear case of autism. So the mother was a computer scientist. And like any scientist, she went in and tried to, she figured out that the species that had taken over his gut, clostridiums, they produced this propionic acid. The propionic acid was going up to his brain and essentially rewiring the immune system there to be inflamed and attack all the time. And it was essentially disrupting all these neuron connections. And it's exactly what we see and observe in autistic brains. So by getting rid of that normal microbiome, the opportunistic types of species, they came in and they seeded and they took completely over. So her hypothesis was eventually validated by scientists, especially one at University of Wisconsin, who not only tied the propionic acid to overinflammation in the brain and all the symptoms of autism that we see, we, he also managed to tie it to uh, food and food cravings in autistic patients. Young autistic patients often crave bread, especially cheap bread. And nobody could put this together. But, you know, I, I even had a student in my microbiology class that corroborated, corroborated this with the patients she'd worked with. They craved bread. They craved McDonald's bread sometimes was the big one. And what you find out is that the feed forward of Clostridium needs more propionic acid. Propionic acid is a preservative in cheap bread. What the bacteria were doing were sending the only positive neurosignals they would give when the child would eat bread, and specifically propionic acid bread. So essentially you end up with this, you can't, the thing with autism is that what these, this acid does and what the immune cells do as a result is that you can't break connections in the neurons. That's how you learn, that's how you adjust. That's why many autistic people are savants and they can remember anything. So they did experiments in mice, for example, with this propionic acid, and immediately when it's in the brain, they completely change to the autistic phenotype. The other cool thing that happens actually, well, one cool thing I guess that happens, I don't know, is that mice that are quote unquote showing the autistic phenotype, they are actually way quicker and way better at figuring out a maze and they can redo the maze just like that, especially in comparison to the normal mice. The problem is, is that when you change a single wall or a single hallway in the maze that you previously gave the quote unquote autistic mice, they cannot adjust. They cannot change what they thought was right. The normal mice will eventually figure it out because you're breaking those neuron connections and that's what propionic acid is interfering with. And that's kind of the story of where some of these mental health issues are gonna come from when you interfere with this ecosystem inside you. I mean, so even, you know, just with the diet, you know, what we're finding is that, yeah, the fibrous bacteria, the ones we used to always feed, 
they're our best ally. Sugar bacteria are fine once in a while, but ultimately they really aren't going to help us as much. So if you can help it, try and have more fiber than sugar, it's really hard. Um, and the other thing is that probiotics are, you know, they're good, but you got to really do that for a long, long time. A better bet is to just have a better fibrous diet because a probiotic, you're essentially sending in, you know, a million bacterial cells in the little pill against trillions that are already in your stomach. It's essentially sending paratroopers in with a box of ammo and saying, you know, I hope this works out. So between antibiotics and the other big thing has been uh, C-sections, actually. See, in a normal birth, the baby passes through the birth canal and is actually exposed to the mother's microbiome. And that's where the first microbiome of the baby actually comes from. With a C-section, that's not the case. And you're usually actually going to get exposed to skin microbiome that will go in and seed your gut for a long time. And that's, and ultimately things work out, but it definitely usually makes the baby a little unhealthy and gives it a, like a less good, like, uh, like first step. I was a C-section baby. It was very unfortunate. And so was, so was Macduff from Shakespeare's Macbeth. And I guess it kind of worked out for him, but not, not in the ultimate story. So Sadly, yeah, there's tons of things that we're finding out that the way we used to do things has not been really, you know, we, we, we still need antibiotics for sure. Don't ever take it that we don't. It's just a matter of we cannot abuse them. We have to treat it like cancer chemotherapy. We have to say we're going to use this only when we need to. And the story I told my students that probably is my bigger microbiome story is that one time my little Shiba Inu, my family dog got attacked by a Malamute. And so I ran in and pried the Malamute's teeth off my Shiba. My bad little Shiba, he didn't even get hurt. <laughs> you know, he had so much scruff to give that even this Malamute thrashing him didn't even hurt him. No blood, no nothing. Meanwhile, my hand was cut three or four different places. And what you do with a dog bite is essentially just give you vancomycin, which is a massive antibiotic. At this time, I was... I think I was 16 or 17 that when this happened. So antibiotics disrupting a microbiome then are better than when you do it as a younger kid. But nonetheless, my microbiome diversity took a hit from that. A good side of the story for me is despite the C-section birth, I had this really um, strict doctor from Eastern Europe, my parents said, and he would never give antibiotics. He never would. And my dad was a, he was kind of a worry, worry wart and he would get so mad but luckily, that preserved my microbiome to a degree that, despite the C-section, I probably turned out okay, I hope. But in any case, this is an emerging science. I hope these 30 minutes have been worth it. You know, there's so many cool stories about this, and I'm glad I kind of fit this into one episode. Sorry, it was a little bit long, but it's super cool. Read all about it if you want. And, I mean, even adjusting my own diet or different things like that, I think you feel the effects. I think that this is an exciting science and now just the fact that we're able to study it now has brought all this to light so read 10 percent human bionicle research this all you want it's super cool send me any questions if you need anything awesome well again thanks so much for joining us scout's been sleeping this whole time so hopefully i didn't put you guys to sleep too i don't know because she's definitely out in any case have a good night good luck and feed that microbiome see you later